All doing well tonight. Have, good, have, a, have had a good day. Uh, I am happy to report uh, Justin Hubbard is doing well. Had some good follow-up visits at the doctor on Monday. I took him out for breakfast Tuesday. His appetite is unaffected, <laughs> which is good. But uh, he's he is doing very well. So. Uh, Mentally doing well, physically doing well. So I know that's a that's a huge praise for that. Um, uh, TJ told me that Evelyn uh, Wilson's been moved to rehab after her surgery on Sunday, so she's doing well. What else can we be prayerful for? Uh, Rex, she's at Rex. Thomas Long, yes, Thomas is. Most likely in his closing days, and uh, visited with him yesterday, and we need to be prayerful for that family. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Remind me of Eunice's last name. Eunice Jones on the way to the Durham Regional. Okay. Ray Jeffrey. Joan, Joan Bowes. Anyone else? Rocky had seizures today. Rocky's having, still having cluster seizures. Uh, working with the doctors, trying to make sure they're doing everything they can for him. So definitely be praying for him and for. For Dolores and for the family. Yes, Uh, my two littles are running a fever. Seems to be just a cold. So, a lot of sickness going around. A lot of sickness. Desiree has more tests on Friday. Okay. Jamie Caudell's had a, a head scan today and is waiting for some results on that. Who was that? Owen. Owen Solomon. Owen Solomon, running a fever. Women's retreat in the back of Women's Day, please. That's right. The Beauty for Ashes retreats next Saturday, followed by the Baptist Women's Day on Sunday. 
Yes, sir. Colby Chambers, still trying to figure out what's going on with him. Who? Copeland Garrett. His family. Copeland Garrett family. Tim's sister Hilda Clayton. All right, let's uh, let's go before the Lord. Lord, it's a privilege to come before you in prayer, and it's a humbling privilege. Man once said, before we utter a word in prayer, we ought to remember into, whom, into whose presence we are walking, we are praying. You're the God who is perfect. You're the God who is holy. You're the God in whom is light and there is no darkness at all. You are sovereign and you are good. You are loving. You are just. And you are in control of all things. And so God, we praise you for that. We take comfort in those truths. Lord, we lift up many that we have heard their names this evening. Many dealing with sickness and with recovery, uh, some physical. Lord, there's emotional pain and strife. We do pray for those who are struggling with sickness of various types. Lord, there's a lot of sickness going around. Pray for those struggling with the flu and with other various things. God, that you'd bring healing. We, We thank you for modern medicine and how... Lord, that is, is, has blessed our, our, our physical health. Lord, we don't trust in that ultimately, Lord, but we, we recognize it as a, as a gift of your grace. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in China and all that they are suffering. Lord, with the, the, the videos emerging and just the, the panic and the spread of this virus, God, we pray that you would work there and be gracious there, Lord. We also pray for a mighty move of the gospel there. We, we can look back over history and see how you have used outbreaks of disease and virus and, and sickness throughout history to make the gospel known. And so we pray, Lord, for the church in China, for our brothers and sisters who, uh, who, who may be either suffering from that illness, Lord, or who would, be faith, who would faithfully minister in the midst of it. God, we praise you uh, for your gifts of grace each and every day. We praise you for our lives. We praise you for our minds that we can commune with you through your word and through prayer and through fellowship with one another. Lord, as we turn our attention now to your word, I pray that you'd open it to us. Help us to see the, uh, the beauty and the majesty of, of Genesis and how you reveal so much through this one book. Lord, thank you for creating the world. Thank you for creating us and for inviting us to know you. We love you and we praise you. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. All right. Uh, so I got, I got really excited and wrote you six pages of notes. 
So I'm going to do my best to get through them. And really what I want to do with those notes is not so much get through every single thing each night, but to give you a resource that you can use. So even if I don't get to everything, then you've got, you've got the information. Um, but when we ask the question, where do we start with studying the Bible? Uh, that can vary depending on what you want to study. If there's a particular topic you want to study, if there's a uh, trying to lead a new believer through what's it mean to be a Christian or uh, what does the Bible say about uh, a various, various topics or different places you can go. But our goal with this study is to hear what is the biblical story. What, what is the Bible saying through these 66 books that God has put together into his Bible? And so you see on your notes, and if you don't have notes, um, I will, we'll make some more after. Uh, I notice a few of you may have come in. Uh, again, I make more every week, and y'all just keep coming, so it's on y'all. Um, there you go. Uh, it's a good problem to have. Amen. Um, See, the very first thing, the, the careful study of history of something, particularly the study of the beginning of something, allows us to know the ultimate outcome. Now, it's not always the case. You know, if you, if you follow a, a mystery or, you know, a suspense-type story, uh, sometimes the writer, the author, will keep the, the ending hidden. But that's not the case with the Bible. We can, we, can, we can pull out of Genesis where the whole Bible is going to go. And by studying the beginning... We get the trajectory, we get the purpose, we get the message, we get the, the main idea of what the Bible is about. We can, we can assume the ending based on the beginning. And without the beginning, then we, we may get lost somewhere in the middle. If you don't know where you started, if you don't know what you started for, if you don't know what God has said about certain things, and trying to pick up in the middle may be hard. If you don't have a concept of the whole or of the beginning. So the reason we are studying each book of the Bible in this manner is so that we can be refreshed and to become more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable about what the Bible teaches. I asked you last week if it would be helpful to, to know the Bible better. You all agreed, which I'm happy about. I heartily agree. I want to know the Bible better. I want, to, I want to give myself to the study of Scripture, to know it more, to hide it in my heart more. David says in Psalm 19 uh, that um, he hides God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. That should be our prayer. That One of the reasons we study the Bible is so that we have a right relationship to God. A lot of times, I think if we're honest, we approach the Bible because we want God to say something to us. We have a problem. We want God to speak directly to that problem so that we know what to do. But I think on the whole, Bible study should be so that we rightly relate to God. God doesn't change. We change. God doesn't move away from us. We move away from God. And so studying the Bible in this way, looking at, looking at big chunks or books at a time, is a helpful refresher, and it's a helpful way to know what the Bible's about. As I said last week, each book has its own uniqueness, and yet each book tells the same story. Each book gives further insight into that large biblical story. And so if we're to understand the story of the Bible, we must begin where the Bible begins, which is the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings. Proverbs uh, chapter 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, wisdom is a, a, an important thing. 
There's a lot of people who act wise who aren't wise. Uh, just like, you know, it's like a person comes up and brags to you about how humble they are. If a person brags to you about how wise they are, then, you know, they may not be as wise as they think they are. But wisdom, according to scripture, is a, is a, is a treasure. Wisdom, according to scripture, is something that we should seek after. Wisdom, according to scripture, is something that's available to us. Wisdom is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the embodiment of perfect wisdom. James tells us that if we lack wisdom, then we should ask of God who gives freely, but let him ask in faith, it says. So beginning in Genesis, it will reveal a number of things about the Bible. It will tell us the purpose of the Bible. It will tell us God's purposes. It will tell us a trajectory or the path down which we're going to move. It'll tell us God's methods for how he works in the world. It'll tell us motives. Why does God act? Now, it doesn't answer all of that, you know, doesn't answer that question for everything. Why does God do certain things? The Bible doesn't, doesn't address all of that. But it also, more importantly, helps us understand our motives. Who are we? If you come in my office, which you're all welcome at any point, if you come in my office and you come through the door and turn around and look back over the door, you'll find a quote that says, wisdom, which is true wisdom, is, or starts with, knowledge of who God is and knowledge of who I am, in that order. If I don't understand who God is, then I can't rightly understand who I am. If I try to understand who I am and then understand who God is, well, I'm going to have some problems. But we start where God starts. Uh, there's a close tie between Genesis and the books that follow. Genesis sets up the story of Exodus Exodus uh, is the story of the Israelites, and we'll get there in a minute, but Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are tied to the story of the Israelites, but they develop a, a bit different theme. But without Genesis, those four books don't, don't make much sense at all. So Genesis sets up those stories. It explains uh, why Moses shows up, what he does, why the law is important, all of that. Uh, Genesis is intricately tied to the rest of the Bible, We see Genesis show up all over the place. Chapter 1 teaches this one God idea called monotheism. Now we believe in Christian theology that God is uh, one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are some analogies that try to get at how the three in one works, but they all fail at some point. Because we just can't quite grasp the fullness of that doctrine, and yet the Bible asserts it. It's there. It's true. That the Bible, or that the Bible says that God is three in one all the time, all at one time. There are some heresies in our, in our culture today. One of those heresies is called uh, modalism. Anybody ever heard of that? Modalism says that God is three persons, but he's three one at a time. So in the Old Testament, he was God the Father. In the New Testament, he's God the Son. And now in the age of the church, he's God the Holy Spirit. And we reject that doctrine because the Bible says, no, he's three in one all the time. So the Genesis asserts that. And we see it from the beginning. In the beginning, God created. In verse 2, it says, the Spirit was there hovering or vibrating is really what it talks about over, over the, the created elements. And then later in the Bible, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul asserts that Jesus was also there, and it was through Jesus that everything was created. 
John asserts that in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it was by the word that everything was made. So the Trinity was active even from the beginning. This shows up again in the second commandment. You have no other gods before the true God. Genesis 2 uh, sets an approach to the relation between man and woman. And this is reflected upon later in the law when Moses writes the law in Leviticus and talks about the importance of right sexual relations. He's drawing on the created order of Genesis chapter 2. The Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, there is a relating to creation. That God created, that God created all things good, that God uh, instilled within creation reflections of himself. And these three Psalms that I've cited aren't the only ones. It's actually all through the Psalms if you read through them. But Psalm 104 celebrates God's creation. Psalm 106 uh, grieves over man's sinfulness. And then Psalm 105 tells us about God's covenant with Abraham. How God made that promise and sustained that promise. And again, if we don't understand Genesis, if we don't understand the covenants that God made with Abraham, then we, we might be a bit of a loss when we read Psalm 105. Ecclesiastes is a reflection on the state of mankind after the fall. So if we don't understand what happened in Genesis 3, if we don't understand what happened to mankind there, then Ecclesiastes may not make as much sense. You might read some of Solomon's laments over, hey, I've tried everything and found nothing good. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I find a lot good. Because if we don't have a right understanding of sin and how sin affects us, then we might misread something like Ecclesiastes. Jesus uh, talks about the definition of marriage when he's confronted with the Pharisees, and he references Genesis. Do you not remember that it was not so, he said to the Pharisees, from the beginning? Talking about God's created order, what's, what's marriage to be? Uh, several writers throughout the New Testament cite Abraham as a model of faith and obedience. And then the Bible ends the way the Bible began. The Bible opens with a garden scene where man and woman are in perfect relation to God, perfect relationship with God, and the Bible closes that way. The Bible closes with a perfect garden setting where man and woman are restored in right relation to God. And God was with them in the garden, Genesis 2, and God is with his people again in the garden at the close of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. And so Genesis is entirely important when it comes to understanding the rest of the Bible. Uh, Some other themes that emerge from a study of Scripture, something called covenant. Anybody ever heard a, a covenantal approach to Scripture? Anybody ever heard that? Or biblical covenants? There are certain ways to understand the Bible or certain ways to tell the story of the Bible. Last week, I gave you four words to describe the major story of the Bible. Anybody remember? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So you can tell the whole story of the Bible with those four words. You can also tell the story of the Bible through the covenants. There are seven major covenants that emerge throughout Scripture. And three of them, three of the seven, come right from Genesis. And if we don't understand what God is doing in those covenants, then we'll miss the significance of the rest. Because the covenant that God makes with Abram, Abraham, he says, through you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. What that means in the larger scope of Scripture is that 
Through Abraham's line, Jesus Christ will be born, and through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, faith will be made available to all. And so the promise God makes to Abraham when he covenants to him, I'm going to give you a son even though you're old and your wife is barren. I'm going to give you a son, and that single son is going to bless all the nations of the world. And what we see come about is, yep, there's a new covenant made in and through Jesus Christ that fulfills the covenant made to Abraham. And so you see, I just noted the three that emerge. We see the covenant of redemption made in Genesis chapter 3 where God says, I'll fix this. I will send someone to crush the serpent. We see God's covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, never again will I flood the earth. And he makes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. So here's the basic storyline of, of, of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about God, creation, Adam and Eve and the fall. Chapters 4 through 11 talk about the time from Adam to Abraham, which include the flood, the Tower of Babel. And then chapters 12 through 50 detail the story of, of three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's some focus on Joseph towards the end, but those are the three main. And if you've ever heard the word patriarchs, have you ever heard that? Talk about the biblical patriarchs. They're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis move pretty quick. The time from Adam to uh, Abraham is at least approximately 2,000 years. At least that long. In the first 11 chapters of the Bible, there's 2,000 years of history. Now, the 12 through 50, there's only about 150 years. But those first 11 chapters cover at least 2,000 years of history. Some scholars citing, you see there, 2 Peter 2.5, think that the majority of human history could have taken place between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 11. That the world could be quite a bit older and even, even, uh, even more history than we've seen since then could have been taken place during that time. Anybody ever been to the um, Ark Encounter in Ohio? A couple of you? Very cool trip. Definitely recommend going. But if you go to the Ark Encounter, they've done a good job of kind of dramatizing what that, that period of life might have been like based on how Genesis describes it. It was a pretty wretched time in human history. And that shows itself with how God deals with them with the flood. But the first 11 chapters of Genesis are a bit like what we're doing with the Bible. We're taking a plane ride up to 30,000 feet and kind of looking down saying, yeah, there's a mountain, there's a river over there. We're getting some of the big pieces, but we're not going down and saying, wow, there's some pretty flowers on the banks of that river. That's what we're doing on Sunday morning. Doing a really in-depth study. But here, we're just doing a really, really uh, broad flyover. And that's what Genesis 1 through 11 are about. It establishes what's foundational without giving us perhaps what we might want to know. God gave us what he wanted us to know. And I said in, in chapters 12 through 50, time slows way down. We, we descend from 30,000 feet all the way down to the ground, and we walk with three men for the rest of the book. So the majority of the book focuses on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, biblical tradition holds that Moses authored these books, Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy. These are often, often called the Pentateuch, which is Penta is a word for, for five. Uh, Tuch is a word for the law. And in Torah, also books of the law. So 
Timing-wise, he most likely wrote these as they were nearing the promised land. So the end of Deuteronomy, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. That's probably when he's writing these five books of the Bible. As far as the basic divisions, as I said, Genesis 1 through 11 are kind of one section. 12 through 50 are the second section. And in each of those two sections, there are four themes that emerge. And this is kind of where we'll, we'll spend the rest of the night. We see the themes of God's holiness and judgment of sin. We see God's mercy. We see his sovereignty. And we see what is our response. Our response is obedience and faith. And I'll show you how we get those things out. But let me pause for a moment. Any questions so far? Yes, ma'am. Who finished the book of Deuteronomy? Because Moses died. Uh, probably Joshua. Uh, but that's not for sure. She asked who finished Deuteronomy with Moses' death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that later, but you know, Moses died on the way into the promised land. God said, you're going to look upon it, but you're not going to go into it. Any other questions about anything so far? Everybody good so far? Nobody's drowning. All right. So let's look at these four themes and how they emerge throughout the book. So the first one is that God displays his character through the world he created. That's kind of a theme we can attach to chapters 1 through 11, that God is displaying who he is through the world he's made. The section provides everything God says in the Bible about a large chunk of human history. We're talking about a, a, a chunk of history, the time from Jesus until us, or from Abraham until Jesus. That's a big chunk of human history that God says, hey, it happened. That's all you need to know. Um, Taking into account the, the, the chronology, if we, put, if, we, if we sit down with the Bible and do math and put it into years, Abraham would have lived about 4,000 years ago. And so if you take a strict chronology, if you do the math, that means Adam would have lived somewhere around six to 7,000 years ago. Um, we find in the first 11 chapters the stories of creation, the fall, we read about Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel. And in this section, we find some fundamental truths about God. They come to the surface as we read these 11 chapters. Primarily that God is self-existent. It's an essential Christian, essential biblical doctrine. God doesn't depend on anyone. No one told God to create. God didn't have to ask permission when he created. We use the Latin phrase ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, God created everything. That he didn't take some kind of primitive matter that was there and like Play-Doh and whip it together and out came the world. That's not how he did it. He spoke and the nothingness obeyed and became something. While the Bible doesn't talk much about God's self-existence, it assumes it. It assumes that, that this is true of God, that he's set apart, that he depends on no one, that he is totally unto himself. It assumes that. If, it, if we don't get that down, then the Bible doesn't make a whole lot of sense in some places. Now, uh, again, anybody know what apologetics are? Yeah, some of y'all have been looking at it in Sunday school. It's, a, it's a, the defending the faith. If you give an apology for something, uh, in one sense, you are defending what you believe. In another sense, you are wrong and you are apologizing. <laughs> but to, to, do, uh, to do the discipline of apologetics, you are making arguments, you are defending what you believe. Now, the Bible 
makes almost no apology in a, in a positive sense for God's existence. You'll notice nowhere in scripture does it say, here are the arguments for why God exists. The Bible just says, he's there. He's there. Um, a major takeaway is that God is our creator, and thus God will be our judge. So you see the, the beginning giving us a glimpse of what's coming at the end. That God as creator will also be God our judge. He gives us our lives and there is coming a day, and I capitalize day because that day is biblical, the day of judgment. There is coming a day when we will stand before him and give him an account of how we stewarded our lives. That's, that's heavy if you think about that. That God will put us before him and, he's, and he will say, I've given you your life. What did you do with it? And like a child standing before a parent knows, they already know. He already knows. And so that's a heavy reality that emerges right out of the beginning. That God is our creator and God will be our judge. And so a question that we need to ask ourselves is, how am I responding to that now? How are you responding to that, to that fact that, that that's in your future? That God will judge, and he will judge you, and he will call you to account for how you have stewarded your life. How are you responding to that? Well, the first of the four things that I noted that God's holiness and judgment of sin, we see that quite clearly. He's committed to dealing with sin. In Genesis, uh, in chapter 3, we encounter the fall that Adam and Eve break God's law. They, they take of the fruit and they eat it. She takes it into her hand, she observes it, she eats it, Adam then follows her and eats the fruit, and thus the fall comes. And in, and in chapter 3, 23, we see that God executes judgment on their sin by banishing them from the garden. You can't be here anymore, our relationship is broken, you can't share in this fellowship, so God executes judgment and puts them out of the garden. In chapter 7, we encounter the flood. There are what's considered four major judgments in Scripture, we see the fall, we see the flood, we see the cross, and then finally the final judgment, which is yet to come. We read about how the floodwaters covered the earth and all of mankind, and yet God saves Noah and his family, and yet wipes out all other land creatures in the world, including all of mankind. The waters covered the earth as an expression of God's death-dealing wrath. Now listen to how God describes mankind at the time of the flood. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. There's been some, some movies that have emerged recently about Noah. Not really tied scripturally. So they're, not, they're not biblically based. But some of them highlight how wretched mankind can be and probably was during this time. It was so wretched that God wiped them out. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And so something else that we should note as a major biblical theme that's coming out of these stories in Genesis is that there is a God. That he made man with meaning with purpose, with dignity, and with value. And by the time we get to the flood, which there's already been a number of generations between Adam and Noah, 
By the time we get to the flood, which is only seven chapters into the Bible, we see quite clearly man has failed. Man has failed. And given his best attempts, will not and cannot get it done. He can't live up to God's righteous standards. As a matter of fact, he's on a downward trajectory. There are some glimmers of hope along the way. We see Noah, and it says Noah was righteous. We'll talk about this in a minute. That doesn't mean Noah was perfect. It doesn't mean Noah was holy. It means that God had special favor on Noah and caused him to walk in righteousness. I'm going to let, leave the cultural commentary alone. You can read that on your own. Uh, God is holy. He will come uh, in Christ to judge our sins. Peter says that Jesus Christ will come and judge the living and the dead. So even in death, we don't escape God's coming judgment. We should be ready to praise God for his beauty and creation, and we often do. But we should also prepare ourselves to be scrutinized by him. That as much as he is beautiful and, and awe-inspiring in creation, his wrath is heavy and his hatred of sin is intense. We should cultivate a readiness to see all of God's goodness in creation while also cultivating a readiness to see our own sin and to confess our sin and to turn away from our sin. You see, this is how we get to true gospel community. This is how we get to living rightly with each other, that we deal with our sin. Genesis tells us where sin comes from. Genesis displays quite clearly what sin does to the world and to our bodies, to our lives, to our relationship to one another. And through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we now have the power to deal with that. We're never going to be sinless until we get to be to heaven, but we can proactively deal with our sin now. And by God's grace, we grow through that. And we grow closer together through that. So just as much as when we see a sunrise or when we walk by the sea or see a beautiful mountainscape, just as much as we're ready to praise God then, we need to be ready to praise God for an awareness of sin and an ability to fight against it and to fight against it with one another. We also see God's mercy. Along with his hatred of sin, we see his, his mercy emerge from Genesis. Alongside of judgment, we always find God's mercy. From the garden, God banishes them from the garden, but he doesn't kill them. He doesn't end their life right then and there. He can, he, he could, but he doesn't. We find him actually promising salvation. They've broken his law. They've scorned his holiness. They have rejected him for a false God. And in the midst of that, he says, I'm still going to save you. I'm still going to save you. In chapter 8, in the midst of the flood, the text says that God remembered Noah. That doesn't mean he forgot Noah. It just says that God is mindful. It means God is mindful of his people. He's mindful of the promises that he makes. Now, now think about how that applies to you. If you are in a moment of crisis, we talked about this the last couple of weeks in Mark. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep. But God is always mindful of the promises he makes to his people. He is always mindful of his goodness and how that extends to you and I, even in the midst of hardship, even when we don't think we can sense it. 
It's important to see that God's mercy is just as much a part of the biblical picture of him as his justice is. Now, there have been times throughout church history where one aspect of God's character gets overemphasized to the detriment of another. And it's important that we hold all of these attributes in right tension because all of them teach a truth about who God is. Uh, It's just an interesting note. The early Christian church understood Noah's Ark to be a, a picture of Christ. They looked at Noah's Ark as the salvation from the storm of judgment, that God saved his people by hiding them in the ark and in so doing protected them from judgment. And so early Christian art, you can find some pieces that have a cross and in the middle of the cross where Jesus would have been is an ark. That it is in through hiding us in Christ that we are protected from the judgment against sin. And it's just a beautiful picture. So that, that highlights that God has always been merciful, but he is never more merciful than he is when he gives us his son, Jesus Christ. That is, a, that is the pinnacle, the climax of his mercy in Scripture. This is why the cross of Christ must always be the center of worship, both public worship and private worship. That's why Protestant Christian crosses are empty. Catholic crosses, Jesus is on the cross. But in Protestant Christian crosses, he's empty. It's empty because he's not there. The fact that he's not there means that I can trust in that. And because he was on the cross and is no longer on the cross, I can trust that God has had mercy upon me and mercy upon you. Well, a third thing we see is God's sovereignty. First 11 chapters, a a picture, a clear picture that God is in total control of everything. He's in control of his creation, and that means the natural realm and mankind. He is the author of everything. He is the owner of everything. He can bless his creation, and he can judge his creation. This can be a touchy subject for folks. Pastor notes, do not arrogantly ignore God and his claims. He is holy and committed to vindicating those claims. He will judge the sin of those he made. We see later in the New Testament on top of page four, some distinct reflections about God's sovereignty, even as it extends to his creation, mankind. In Peter's prayer in Acts chapter 4, Peter says about Jesus' death that Herod and Pilate acted exactly as God had foreordained that they act. We find Jesus in discussing with Pilate, Jesus saying, you're not doing anything, Pilate, that I'm not giving you permission to do. You're not doing anything, Pilate, except acting as I have willed that you act. And so here's a note on sovereignty. This doctrine can be controversial, and it has become a point of emphasis among some circles. Here's one of those places where people tend to overemphasize. They get hung up on the fact that God is sovereign. And it's, it, it can be offensive. If you've never encountered it, it can be offensive. But here's why it's biblical. Here's why it's important. Here's why knowing that God controls everything is a gift The reason why it's important is that it emphasizes that God is able to do as he promises. 
and therefore his people can trust him. You see, if God were not sovereign, his promises might not come true. Are you, I know you're not sovereign, so I won't ask. You're not sovereign. I'm not sovereign. But we make promises. And do our promises sometimes fail? They do. Our promises sometimes fail because we fail to accomplish them. And yet, God makes promises that never fail. And you know why we can trust that his promises never fail? Because he's sovereign. And so he's entirely trustworthy. There are difficult questions about how God's sovereignty and our responsibility fit together. They're both there. They're both there in the Bible. God's in total control of everything, even you. And yet there's also all of these obedience scriptures. Obey, choose holiness, fight against sin, come to faith. They're both there. And if we neglect one for the other, we're just harming ourselves. Because they're both there. The best explanation I've heard of these two things is that there's two great rivers in the Bible. The river of God's sovereignty and the river of man's responsibility. And they meet and mingle in the mind of God and nowhere else. Sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile some of these things and they're not meant for us to be, to to see them reconciled. Just like the Bible says God exists and makes no argument. Here again, the Bible tells us very clearly, these, both of these things are true. Trust them and move on. If you have questions about that, which I usually have, a lot of people have questions about that. We'll talk about it afterwards. Uh, the fourth thing we see emerge is our response. Genesis is concerned with how we respond. These chapters highlight that we are to believe in God. We are to trust him. We are to obey. Uh, was Noah perfect? I said this earlier. No, Noah wasn't perfect, but Noah was righteous. And in his righteousness that was God given, he obeyed. God told him, build a large boat where there's no water. You ever watch a child's cartoon about this? They emphasize the, the, the seeming, foolish, seeming foolishness of, of Noah building this ark. And yet his obedience was him acting righteously. There's a question for us there. How can we know if we are acting righteously? How can we know if we are living righteous lives? The question is, are we obeying this word? This word tells us to do things. It tells us to avoid things. It tells us how to worship. It tells us how to fellowship. It tells us how to deal with conflict. It tells us how to deal with sin. And are we being obedient? See, righteousness righteousness is obedience to the word of God. So let me pause for just a moment. Any questions on any of that? You either have a lot of questions or I just explained it really well. <laughs> All right, well, let's press forward and I'll, I'll move through these a bit quicker. So 1 through 11 is this big span of human history and then in chapter 12, we encounter one man, Abram, when we meet him. We encounter Abram. Uh, his, God's holiness is clearly taught throughout the rest of the book of Genesis just as it is in these first 11 chapters. We see Abraham appealing to God's holiness. 
We see Jacob confessing his unworthiness to God because he knows that God is holy. We see that idolatry is forbidden because it's an offense against God's holiness. We see that God strikes down Judah's wicked sons. We see that God's people must be holy as he is holy. And nowhere in this story is it more clearly emphasized God's holiness and judgment of sin than in the, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, that is totally and completely an act of God's judgment against sin. A point that comes up is that man has no ultimate rights, which, is, which can be an affront. We need to clarify. With each other, our rights are inalienable. Just like our constitution says, we have certain rights as human beings. We shouldn't infringe upon each other's rights. It's the basis, that idea is the basis for our form of government. But before God, we have no ultimate rights that we can appeal to. So when we get to heaven and God begins to judge us, we can't say, but wait, 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 God, I've got this bill of rights over here. That's not how that works. God owns us just like he owns everything. We are part of his creation, and therefore we are wholly accountable to him. And holiness is his standard. Holiness is his standard. And he calls us, what we see is he he doesn't call his people to mere outward conformity. He's not concerned that we behave like religious folks. He's concerned that his people internalize holiness. That holiness affects my heart, that it becomes who I am, that it becomes what I love and what I live for. We see this in the law against intermarriage. God forbids his people from marrying people from other cultures. And the reason is he knew that they would bring in false worship and draw the people away. And that happens all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the life of Solomon. Solomon marries multiple wives, and all of these wives bring in false gods. And, and Solomon, who the Bible says possessed more wisdom than any other human that's ever, ever lived, the wisest man in the world, disobeys God and his heart is led astray. When we internalize sin, which is a false god, which is a, a false savior, when we internalize, this is not on your notes, when we internalize sin, our external holiness is ultimately for nothing. If we just show up to church and we're acting religious and we talk in Christian language and and we participate in Christian things, but in here there is nothing, then all of that behavior is for nothing. Jesus encountered this with the Pharisees. He said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look great. But all it is is clean death. You look really great from the outside. But all it is is a a room for death. And so God is not interested that we behave outwardly. He is interested, immensely interested, that we love his law. Which is why in Psalm 1 it says, Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night, who finds his delight in the law. Genesis corrects the false idea. Sometimes we can think that to be human is to be sinful. Well, I just do that because I'm human. 
He's only doing that because he's human. Well, Genesis corrects that notion to be a fallen man. To be fallen is to, got tongue tied. <laughs> to be fallen human is to be sinful. To be human isn't to be sinful. Otherwise, Jesus couldn't have been without sin. Because Jesus, what we, what we see with Jesus is that not only was he fully God, but he was fully man. And he was fully man without sin. Adam and Eve before the fall were fully human without sin. And so God's call to holiness is a, is a call to distinct living that is contrary to what is natural to our fallen nature. So we can't be passive by, in saying, well, that's just how he is, or that's just how she is, or that's just, that's just how I am. God doesn't accept those kind of excuses, and we shouldn't either. We should discipline ourselves for holiness. We should love the things that God loves. Um, we see God's mercy exhibited in Genesis chapter 12 through 50, just as we saw in the first 11 chapters. In the midst of judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, God has mercy and saves his covenant people. He calls Lot out, Lot and his family, calls them out. God's covenant promises to Abraham are distinct acts of mercy. He promises to uphold his end of the promise. That's what a covenant is. That God promises, these things are going to happen. I'm going to make sure these things happen. I'm putting my reputation on the line. Now, I'm skipping over a lot. If you've read Genesis, you know I'm skipping over a whole lot. But in Genesis chapter 15, we find this very interesting story of where God comes to Abraham at sunset, and he gives him a vision. And in the vision... Uh, there's some animals that are cut in, cut, cut in half and laid, each half is laid aside. And in the vision, Abraham sees a pot with a fire pass through those animal halves. Do y'all recall that story? If you've read it? Well, the, 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 the reason or the, the, the point is God is saying, Abraham, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't, give you a son that becomes a blessing to all nations. May what has happened to these animals happen to me. You see, the, the word covenant has in its root word cut. To cut a covenant is, is the literal language that the Old Testament uses. There's blood involved. There's, there's promise involved. There's consequence involved with breaking it. And so God is saying, may the consequence that has fallen on these animals fall on me if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. Here's the interpretation. I'm not going to fail, so that's not going to happen. And it's a distinct act of grace because if you know anything about Abraham's life, it's up and down. Abraham has some pretty successful moments and Abraham has some pretty stinking low moments. And I find a lot of encouragement in that. That as good as Abraham was, as good as Moses was, as good as David was, as good as a lot of these biblical characters were, they failed. And God sustained them. And that's good news. Um, we see God's sovereignty come to the surface. We see that God chooses Abram and not his brother. We see that God chooses Isaac and not Esau. We see that God prevents King Abimelech from acting on his affections for Sarah. He guards Sarah's dignity in that. God sovereignly tells Abraham that his descendants will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and that they'll leave richer. They'll actually leave with all the loot 
God tells him that. That's going to happen. And if God wasn't sovereign so that he could orchestrate that, then he couldn't have told Abraham that. We see God sovereignly working in Joseph's life. Do you know why Joseph was thrown in a pit and sold into slavery? Because God wanted it to happen. God worked through the sinful hatred of Joseph's brothers. And as they were acting against Joseph's life, God was acting for Joseph's life. And what we see at the close of Genesis is Joseph, the second in command over Egypt, caring for his people that have wronged him. There are a lot of bad things that happen in Joseph's life. And if you know that story, then he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. Do you know if God wasn't sovereign, that statement couldn't be said? There's a gradation, there, a grade. Mankind can act as he wants, but he can't mess up God's plan. And actually what we see is that mankind acting as he will, trying to mess up God's plan, and in so doing, carrying out God's plan. Which is why Peter says, Herod and and Pilate might have acted the way they did, but they were just doing what God had foreordained. But you know who's going to stand accountable for the murder of Jesus? Herod and Pilate. And the Pharisees. And yet Isaiah chapter 10, or Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says that it was the will of God to crush Christ on the cross. So we see his sovereignty everywhere. And that's a good thing. We see our response that Abraham responded to God with faith and with obedience. Paul cites in Romans 4, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God obediently, even when God called him to sacrifice Isaac. I preached on that during Christmas when, when, Abraham, when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He went up the mountain with the faith that if God can give an old barren woman a child, if God can create life out of death in the way that he did with Sarah, then he can, create, he can give back the chosen son from the dead. And in so doing, he foreshadowed the cross. Because at the top of the mountain, he says to his son, God himself will provide the lamb. And if you remember, it was most likely on that very mountain where the cross happened. So, what are, what are some of our major takeaways? Man, I did that pretty good. Six pages. What are some major takeaways? Genesis emphasizes God's intolerance of sin. That it's a, it's a huge problem in the world. Two things to note. That uh, it is our hope that God is intolerant of sin because he promises to triumph over it. That even though sin is breaking the world every single day, It breaks everything from my emotions over something that I shouldn't get angry over to civilizations. It breaks it all, and yet God has promised he'll triumph over it. He promised in chapter 3, verse 15, there was coming a snake crusher. You know who came? The snake crusher. I'm referencing the Jesus storybook Bible again. 
that Christ came and defeated Satan on the cross and through his resurrection has made a way for salvation, for sin to ultimately be dealt with. But it's all Genesis also shows that even the most righteous are liable to sin. A lot of times we think we can spot the, the bad sinners. They look a certain way or smell a certain way or act a certain way. We think we can pick the bad folks out. And yet Genesis is brutally honest that even the most holy of Christians fall into some of the worst sin. Abraham betrayed his wife several times just to save himself. God's chosen people did led an incredibly sinful massacre of an entire city. There is all kinds of grievous sin in Genesis. And it's honest about it. And we should be honest about it. And we should be, we should be um, not just honest about the realities of sin, but we should be even more honest about the gospel's power to save. So for the church, what this means is that we should recognize and savor the glory of God. That should be primary in our lives. It should be primary in our worship. It should be primary in all that we do. Genesis holds that up. We should take a stand against sin in all forms. We should expect to sin against one another. You expect that? Do you expect to be sinned against by those closest to you? you expect, we, we all expect to be sinned against by the world. But are we expecting to be sinned against by each other? Because the Bible says that that's going to happen. We should expect that all people, as Christians included, struggle with sin, but... For the church, we should take steps to fight against sin, to guard one another, to keep watch and take steps to fight against sin, to restore one another when repentance occurs. These are all promises that emerge from the pages of the Bible. So here's the last point I'll make. I'll let you read the rest of those. Uh, The very bottom of that page, the second bullet point from the bottom. We should be diligent students of the Scriptures seeking to bring every aspect of our lives, both individuals and members of Christ's body, into alignment with the Bible. That should be how we go about practicing our righteousness. That we be diligently studying the Bible, that we be hearing from God what he says, and that we actively together and individually be bringing our lives into alignment with this. Now again, I skipped over a lot in Genesis. I tried to hit the high points. Genesis is concerned with God's holiness. Sets the trajectory. It's a major theme. Genesis tells us very clearly, God is not passive with sin. Tells us that God has more mercy than we think. It tells us that God is more in control than we think, and that's for our good. And it also tells us, how do we respond? We respond through faith and through obedience, and through hope. So any questions from you all about that? Man, I did a really good job. Well, here's here's the challenge for you. Has anybody ever sat down to read Genesis all the way through at once? It'd take you a couple hours probably. But here, it's worth it. 
it's worth it. Sit down, block off some time. Now here's, here's how I describe books in general. If you know anything about me, you know I love books. The way I think about books is I, I'm getting to sit down and have a conversation with the person who wrote this book. That's, that's kind of how I, I think about books, which makes me a nerd, I'm sure. I'm okay with that. But think about it this way. When you sit down and open this book, you are sitting down to have a conversation with God. And if you get to spend 50 chapters having a conversation with God, that is a distinct honor that not much of Christian history has had that, op- has had that option. You know, I, I happen to own a lot of Bibles, and I'm reminded when I pick the one up that, that most, of, most of the Christians throughout the history of the world haven't had access to God's Word like we do. And we can sit down. We can block off time in our schedule. And we can, we can sit down and let God speak it right into our hearts. So sit down and read Genesis all at once. You know, get you a sandwich and read. Or listen, you know, you get an audio book. The ESV app, and there's probably some other ones, but the ESV app is free and it'll read it to you. But sit down and read it and encounter the story. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll finish. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for the story of Genesis and telling us where the world came from, how you crafted it, how you made it good, and how you made us to be the bearers of your image and how, Lord, through sin, we've become broken and separated from you. And Lord, Genesis tells us just how broken the world is because of sin. God, I pray that we would hear it soberly that would help us understand the world and help us understand why things happen in the world that happen. But over and above all that, God, I pray that we would hear from, from the pages of Genesis your promises to save. And they don't rest on us. They rest on you. And you don't fail because you can't fail. So God, help us to have confidence in that. Help us to be diligent students of your word. Help us to have ongoing and long and regular conversations with you through your word. What a distinct privilege that is. Lord, thank you for another chance to gather and to to share in time together under the word. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.